0: Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy, and welcome to the latest www.IainAbernethy.com podcast. got a bit of a mixed bag for you uh, this month. Uh, it's made up of two sections to begin with, where we look at uh, Funakoshi's writing, uh, particularly a quote, and how that relates to the nature of kata. Um, it lo- looks at a lot of the misunderstandings about kata and, uh, that exist both within and outside the karate world. And in the second part we're going to look at the link between kata and live practice and again looking at some of uh, Funakoshi's writings and Motaboos and Mabunis as well. So hopefully you'll find those two separate parts interesting and then we're going to look and have a discussion about the WCA or the World Combat Association which is a group that myself, Peter Constein and Jeff Thompson run. Uh, natural home, I think, for the pragmatically-minded traditionalist, and um, I want to explain a bit about the ethos and the thinking behind the group, because I probably don't uh, mention it enough. Uh, Before we get into all of that, one thing I'd like to make sure that I uh, mention in this introduction is the Practical Karate Weekly newsletters. Uh, You'll have seen these things, these kind of like fake uh, newspapers that um, pick up various feeds from various sources and automatically put them together. Well, I've set one of those up, but then I actually get in there and physically edit it as well. So if you Google Practical Karate Weekly, you'll find it. Um, there's a new is- issue out around about 10 a.m. every Wednesday morning. By the time I've had a chance to kind of get it to the office and get it edited. And I hope that you'll find that interesting each week. It's, it collects all the, the, whatever the good and the great have put out during that week. Um, it's a nice kind of catch-all of all that's going on in the kind of practical karate and practical self-defense world. So, um, you can subscribe to that directly as well. So you'll get an email sent every time one comes out. Uh, But if you just check it out anyway, because I think it's of interest and I I don't think I've really made enough of a job of making sure that everybody knows that it's, it's there. Because, you know, if you like these podcasts, you'll, you'll, you'll like that, um, that newsletter. And in addition to those, of course, I need to remind you about my own personal newsletters at IanAbenethe.com. If you've got the right hand corner, you can click on join the newsletter. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll get a fraction of what I actually put out. It's just the way that Facebook works. Unless you pay them large amounts of money to promote your posts to the people who've liked the page, only a fraction of people get to see it. So we've got just under 14,000 people. Have liked the Facebook page, and at, at a guess, I'd say about 20% of people actually see what we put out, based on the figures. So you're going to be missing a lot of stuff. So if you click on the join the newsletter, you'll get to know about everything uh, once every month or six weeks or something, and that way it'll it'll make sure that you're uh, you're kept in the loop. All right, okay. So I just want to mention that my own newsletters and the Practical Karate Weekly newsletters. I'll we'll now get into the first part of this month's podcast where we're going to look at one of Gichin Funakoshi's quotes and how that relates to the nature of kata. So in the first part of this podcast, I'd like to discuss a quotation by Gichin Funakoshi, which is taken from the book uh, The Essence of Karate, which is a collection of Funakoshi's writings. So the quote is uh, as follows. Like textbooks to a student, or tactical exercises to a soldier, kata are the most important element of karate. Now I really like this quote because I feel it succinctly captures what kata really is. Now kata is not an imaginary fight against multiple attackers. You know, that's a notion written off as nonsense by Kenwa Mabuni in the 1930s. And yet still it persists both within the karate world and as martial arts of other disciplines looking in. But kata's not. It's not an imaginary fight. What kata truly does is provide the syllabus of karate while also giving us manifest examples of the combative principles and tactics that underpin the application of that syllabus. Now Funakoshi's two metaphors in the preceding quote capture that really well I think. So we'll analyze them separately so the first one is kata as a textbook. Now, in this analogy, Catler is seen as a repository of knowledge, however, just like a textbook, the information within it cannot live and breathe unless it is studied, understood and applied. Owning a book, no matter how pristine the condition of that book, is useless unless the book is actually read. Books exist to be read. Their very purpose is to record the knowledge of an expert, you know, the author, so it can be disseminated and studied by others, the readers. Kata also exists to be studied. Their very purpose is to record the knowledge of an expert, you know, in this case a past master, so it can be disseminated and studied by others, you know, us modern day karateka. So, like a textbook, kata provide knowledge. But it's important we also take into account one of Funakoshi's other bits of guidance on kata. So, there's a much quoted uh, line from uh, Karate Do Han where he said, once a form has been learned, it must be practiced repeatedly until it can be plied in an emergency. For knowledge of just the sequence of a form in karate is useless. So it's not just a knowledge of the external form of the kata we need, but knowledge of how that kata should be applied, i.e. the bunkai of that kata. Kata records all the strikes, locks, throws, cranks, drills, etc. that illustrate the teachings of the person who made or inspired that kata. Kata gives us the syllabus of karate. So the other analogy Funakoshi uses is kata as a tactical exercise. So let's explore that one. So when soldiers do such exercises, they are not looking to learn the detailed and exact specifics of a future conflict, but instead they are learning to act in accordance with good tactics and procedures that are most likely to lead to the right result in the ever-changing combative environment. They acknowledge that it's impossible to know the exact detail of any given conflict ahead of time. The specifics of conflict will never be exactly the same as the exercise. But by engaging in exercises which encourage action in accordance with good tactics, the soldier will develop what amount to combative habits, which are most likely to lead to favourable action. This is exactly what Kata should do. Kata is not an exact and precise pre-enactment of future battles. You know, i.e., your enemy will attack from the left at an angle of exactly 90 degrees, and then his accomplice will attack from the opposite side exactly 90 degrees, and then the other accomplice will attack from behind, and so on. Sadly, way too many Karateka think that's the case. In truth, what Kata does is give a series of examples of methods based upon sound combative principles. Through the practice of those examples, we, like the soldier, gain combative habits that we should be able to freely apply in the ever-changing world of conflict. So I mean, if you want you know, m- more detailed look at how that's supposed to work, there's the article on uh, ianabinethy.com called uh, The Four Stages of Cutter." And if I remember correctly, I think we did a podcast version of that uh, that as well, so you should still be able to find that on iTunes and stuff. But anyway, so in, in brief summation of the four uh, stages of cata, uh first thing we do is we learn the Cutter. so stage one. We studied the bunkai, stage two. We identify the underlying principles of that bunkai so we can adapt and vary the specific example in accordance with the underlying principles, which is stage three. And we gain live experience of doing that through kata based sparring, which is stage four. Now, if you look at Funakoshi's 18th precept, um, he again underlines the idea that kata is to be freely applied in accordance with his principles. So, you know, Funakoshi did his 20 precepts, of which this is number 18. Always perform kata exactly. Combat is another matter. Now that precept is widely misrepresented as being, you know, kata is one thing, fighting is another thing. But that's a million miles away from what Funakoshi was trying to communicate. And the reason we know that's not what Funakoshi meant is because in the book, Karate Dork Tai Kan, Genwa Nakasoni further explained all of Funakoshi's 20 precepts and Funakoshi endorsed those explanations. When explaining this 18th precept Nakasone said never be shackled by the rituals of kata but instead move freely according to the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So while the solar kata is precise and exacting in order to foster an extremely high level of body awareness we don't expect to recreate the kata in its entirety without any alteration or deviation in live combat. Instead we will move freely as the situation dictates all the while acting in accordance with the combative principles encapsulated within the kata, and as we have practiced in our bunkai drills and our kata-based sparring, our solo kata will be exact and extremely consistent. Our application of that kata will be fluid and ever-changing. This is what Funakoshi is wanting us to understand via his eighteenth princept. This is also why he likens kata to soldiers' tactical exercises. The soldier does not expect the exercise to perfectly match future conflicts. But they understand that through the exercises, they will gain an understanding, hopefully an intuitive and habitual understanding, as opposed to an intellectual one, that will enable them to best navigate those future conflicts. Kata is exactly the same when it's correctly understood and practiced. So as well as giving us the techniques of Karate, Kata also gives us the tactics of Karate. Or to put it another way, Kata gives us both the what of Karate, i.e. what we do, the techniques, and the when of Karate i.e. when we do something or the tactics. Take away kata from karate and there's very little left. In the quotation we're discussing, Funakoshi succinctly describes what kata should be. It's not a pretend fight, but instead it's a repository of the knowledge the experts that came before us have bequeathed to us, like a textbook. So it provides examples of the combative principles and tactics which underpin karate. As part of our kata practice, we should seek to understand those combative principles and tactics such that they can be freely applied in an habitual manner in the ever-changing, unpredictable world of life conflict, like soldiers' tactical exercises. When understood in this way, kata are without doubt, as Funakoshi says, the most important element of karate. I hope you enjoyed that. So that was kind of a look at the nature of Kata, using Funakoshi's quote as a, a vehicle to have that discussion. And now what I'd like to do in this next part is another recent piece of writing where we look at the link between Kata and live practice and how we can assess the validity of our understanding of Kata uh, through live practice. And again, this looks at you know some of the writings of, of Funakoshi and uh, and others. So uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, the second section on the link between kata and life practice. So in the second part of the uh, the podcast, uh, we're going to discuss uh, a section of Karate Do My Way of Life, which is again, it's another book by. Uh, Funakoshi, and the section we're going to look at is one in which he describes his clandestine training with Anko Azato. So this is what he said. He said, I taught school during the day, and then, as the ban against karate was still being enforced, I made my stealthy way in the dead of night, carrying a dim lantern where there was no moon to the house of Master Azato, when, night after night, I would steal home just before daybreak. The neighbors took to conjecturing amongst themselves as to where I went and what I was doing. Some decided that the only possible answer to this curious enigma was a brothel. The truth of this matter was very different indeed. Night after night, often in the backyard of a house, as the master looked on, I would practice Akata time and time again, week after week, sometimes month after month, until I had mastered it to my teacher's satisfaction. This constant repetition of a single catter was gruelling, often exasperating and on occasion humiliating. More than once I had to lick the dust on the floor of the dojo or in the Izato backyard. But practice was strict and I was never permitted to learn another catter until I had satisfactorily understood the one I had been working on. So many years ago when I first read this I was struck by the seeming sadism of Zato's method of correction. You know, More than once I had to lick the dust on the floor of the dojo, or in the Azato backyard. When I returned to the book I read it quite differently, seeing it as being a turn of phrase, possibly a clumsily translated one, akin to a skateboarder saying that they ate dirt when they had fallen to the floor in a painful way. Uh, we therefore have two ways of reading Funakoshi's statement. We can lead it literally, such that Azato made Funakoshi lick the dirt from the floor for any error made in Kata, or we can read it figuratively, meaning that Funakoshi was unceremoniously dropped to the floor as a result of failing to understand the kata properly. Funakoshi certainly doesn't give the impression that Azato was a cruel or sadistic teacher, I mean quite the opposite. You know, he, this is what he says of him, he says, um, uh, It was my good fortune to be brought to Azato's attention and to eventually to receive my instruction in karate at his remarkable hands. Throughout all of Funakoshi's works he has nothing but praise for his teacher, both as a man and a martial artist, so it seems highly unlikely to me that Azato demanded Funakoshi get down on his hands and knees and lick the floor as a chastisement for errors made in his solo performance of Kata. It seems much more likely that it is indeed a turn of phrase, and what Funakoshi is referring to is being unceremoniously dropped to the dirt or being dumped onto the floor of Azato's dojo. Immediately after this eating dirt statement, Funakoshi states, I was never permitted to learn another kata until I had satisfactorily understood the one I had been working on. This would infer that Funakoshi being dumped to the floor was a sign that the kata had not been fully understood. This would certainly be in line with Funakoshi's views on kata as stated elsewhere. So, as we mentioned in the first section, in Karate do uh, Kyohan, Funakoshi said, Once a kata has been learnt, it must be practised repeatedly until it can be applied in emergency, for knowledge of just the sequence of a kata in karate is useless. I therefore feel Funakoshi's eating dirt comment is indicative of the idea that what shows true understanding of the kata is not the solo performance, which Funakoshi deemed has been useless when separated from function, but the ability to apply that kata. As I read it, Azatta would test Funakoshi's understanding of the kata through a test of application. Funakoshi, more than once, found himself humiliatingly dropped to the floor and that was undeniable proof that the kata was far from being understood. In an interview in 1936, Choky Motobu also describes the secret nighttime training of the past. So this is what he says. Matsumora from Tamari and others used to go up to Katabaru at night when the moon was very bright. There they trained so hard that they could not even get up by themselves because of their aching backs and legs. All their body parts were so sore that that whenever they reached their homes around dawn, they were unable to even crawl inside. So they lay down at the entrances where they fell asleep. They were too tired to go to their bedrooms. This is how hard they used to train in those days. They trained and studied kata and kumite at the same time. For the purposes of this discussion, this is how hard they used to train in those days, They trained and studied kata and kumite at the same time, that is of most relevance. Again we see the link between kata and kumite being emphasised. Kenwa Mabuni, the founder of Shitoru, also experimented with armour to permit hard contact while keeping sparring safe. However, he had his reservations about the armour and was concerned people would come to rely on it. Uh, What he said was, the main disadvantage of the armour to date is that we are not fully able to use any part of the body as a weapon, which is the nature of Karate. It is my hope that the current armour will be improved upon, and with continued practice and research this problem can be overcome. In the meantime, those who would use armour should not neglect the practice of Kata in conjunction with prearranged sparring and free sparring without armour, otherwise you will come to rely on the armour. Consequently, you will miss the aim of karate, which is to be able to protect oneself from an assailant. The need for live practice is emphasized throughout the writings of the past masters, as is the need to understand the link between kata and that live practice. So, Sparring does not exist apart from the kata, but for the practice of the kata. That's Gichin Furukoshi in Karate do Han. Kumite is an actual fight that uses many basic styles of kata to grapple with the opponent. That's Motobu talking in Ruku Karate Kempo. Through sparring, one may identify the practical meaning of kata. So that's Chojimayagi in Karate Dō Gaisetsu, and, you know, and so on. You know, I think karate would greatly benefit from a return to this traditional view. The true measure of an individual's understanding of kata is not the aesthetics of solo performance, but how well that individual can apply the lessons of that kata. Skill in application is a concrete, real-world measure. However, judging a cutter on solo performance alone means that we are using arbitrary and subjective criteria. It's not the look of a punch in the cutter that counts, but how hard that punch hits. It is not the aesthetics of a throwing motion in the solo cutter that's really important, but instead it's how well we can actually throw people. Good aesthetics are an inevitable byproduct of the pursuit of function. However function is not an inevitable consequence of the pursuit of aesthetics because aesthetics are subjective. Solo kata provides a syllabus for what we do. It also provides a you know good form of supplementary solo practice. However, it is no good if solo kata becomes the goal of practice, instead of being the part of the whole that it is intended to be. It seems abundantly clear to me that function was the test of understanding that Azato applied to Funakoshi's kata. Additionally, the link between kata and kumite is clearly expressed in the writings of many past masters. For clarity, we're not talking about kumite based on the rules of modern competition, but kumite based on the nature of real conflict and kata, as described by the masters of the past. In Karate Do My Way of Life, Funakoshi describes the close relationship between tagumi okinawan wrestling) and karate. He describes bouts where he and others would fight to unconsciousness, submission, or the intervention of a referee. He goes on to say that they would also engage in such bouts with multiple opponents. And adds to that, he goes, it's hard to think of a better way to learn to defend oneself against more than one opponent. I agree. Funakoshi did it live and so should we. When I wrote my first book in 2001, I discussed this catabase sparring idea. And the vital need for bunk-eye drills to progress into live drills. And while bunkai is getting more and more popular, I think the need for live drills has not yet been fully embraced. KBS is practical, fun, safe and it's usually beneficial when correctly structured. It's a vital part of making karate work and as we have seen it has its roots in traditional practice. As seems to have regarded the functional application of kata as being the ultimate measure of understanding. You you could not move on to another kata until practical application had been demonstrated. Funakoshi said that kata without application was useless and that sparring existed for the practice of kata. Motabu tells us that kata and kumite were always practiced side by side and that in kumite we used the techniques of kata to grapple with our opponents. Maggie tells us that it is inspiring that we come to understand the practical application of kata. For Funakoshi tells us that live practice against multiple opponents is the best way to learn to protect ourselves from multiple opponents, and so on. We need to ensure that we embrace all of this and include live practice as an inextricable part of Kata. It is then, and only then, that Kata can truly live and breathe and its value become fully realised. Well I think those two pieces sit together quite nicely. In the first one we look at the the nature of kata uh, that it's not a replica fight. In fact what it is is it's a collection of knowledge from the past masters that gives us the techniques, the principles and the tactics that we would employ in live situations, and in the second part, we look at how we would uh, practice live, and how we need to be able to give those catter techniques uh, free expression. So, solo training's not enough, bunkai training's not enough, we need live practice. However, if you do away with catter and just go to live practice, you've got nothing to tell you what to do in that live practice. So, I, I sometimes liken it to, you know, if I wanted to trek up a mountain, it's helpful if I have a map. I could just set off and hope I make it and don't fall into a ravine or get eaten by wild animals. But it's far better if I have a map from someone who's gone there before saying, these, this is the direction to take, these are the skills you need, this is where you want to avoid. And that's essentially what Carter what is. It, it, it's It's a map that helps us to navigate the wilderness of conflict. Now, if you enter the wilderness of conflict without a map, that's obviously problematic. But if you just own a map, that does not make you a mountaineer. So someone who just knows Qatar and hasn't actually ventured out onto the mountain, who hasn't taken uh, part in live practice, who hasn't tried to use the information on the map, on, you know, actually on the mountain, take the map onto the mountain. Um, it's obviously incomplete. It, it, it's not a kind of rounded process. So I hope those two uh, fit together, kind of give you um, a nice insight, I think, into the general overview of what I feel Qatar should be. Okay, so in this next part, we're going to have a look at the the WCA, which is the World uh, Combat Association. Uh, at first, there was the British Combat Association, set up by Peter Constantine and Jeff Thompson. Uh, eventually, they became the British Combat Karate Association, which is the kind of the karate wing, if you like, of the of the uh, the BCA. And for those listening overseas. Um, if you think of any British karateka who has anything to do with kind of practical karate, if you've read any books by any, uh, or seen any uh, videos online or DVDs of any practical karateka originating from the UK, I would say there's at least a 95% chance that person is a member of the British Combat Association or the British Combat Karate Association so you know, think of Lee Taylor Andy Kidd, Rakesh Patel, myself there's that big, big group and many more, I could go on and on and on but anyone who's anybody within British Practical Karate is a member of those groups. Now the World Combat Association is the international wing of that, which was set up later on um, to cater for the, the huge influx of people who were seeing what we were doing and say, you know, I want to be a part of that, and we currently have members in, you know, America, Australia, um, Canada, uh, Germany, Denmark, Norway, all over the place, so, um, but I don't really tell people about it enough, so I hope you'll find this um, interesting, so what I'd like to do is first give you my introduction to it, and then I'll give you Peter's introduction to it, and so you get an idea of what the WCA is about. Now, whether you wish to become a member or not is obviously, I'm not pushing it here I'm just but think hopefully you'll just find it interesting to to learn about it and to learn about uh, about the group and it may be a natural home for you if you want to be part of this quite large network now of uh, pragmatically minded uh, traditionalists so um so anyway yeah here's my explanation of the the world combat association and its its aims. Exponential growth in those returning to practising the martial arts in a practical way means that there is now a pressing need for a global, dedicated association so practitioners of applied martial arts can band together for the benefit of both the arts and themselves. The bodies set up to promote sporting offshoots, or a particular style or mythology, as useful as they can be for members, do little to promote and enhance what we would see as an extremely important aspect of the martial arts. An open and inclusive worldwide association is needed for pragmatic traditionalists and practitioners of functional martial arts. The World Combat Association fulfills this need. Many martial arts bodies have a recurring bad habit of trying to limit the freedom of their members and hence the WCA aims to promote and enhance the wide variety of pragmatic approaches without imposing unnecessary limits on people. The WCA will be wholly dedicated to the promotion and furtherance of applied martial arts. Your standard association will typically deal with things like insurance, providing representatives for competitions, and so on. You know, that's not the role of the WCA. The WCA has been set up to be an independent association of like-minded individuals who believe that applied martial arts need a body to address the specific issues associated with our pragmatic approaches. The WCA is totally dedicated to, and totally focused on, the promotion and study of the practical aspects of the martial arts. We will therefore not be engaging in activities such as selling insurance, etc. Those who therefore have insurance through the other bodies to which they belong, or who have it independently, therefore do not need to pay for a service they do not need. We will be totally happy for all WCA members to be members of as many or as few other bodies as they wish. As I say, it's not our job to impose restrictions on members, just the opposite in fact. The WCA will promote all practical approaches to the martial arts and will have no dictatorial hierarchy. This is a group in which diversity in approach, providing it remains practical and of high quality, is encouraged and deemed valuable. The WCA aims to meet the following objectives and to provide the following services. To provide a dedicated body for practically minded martial artists that is open to all and does not restrict individual approaches. To promote the practice of Applied Martial Arts. To promote those individuals, groups and instructors who are contributing to the furtherance of Applied Martial Arts and to help them get the recognition they deserve. To ensure instructors of Applied Martial Arts from all over the globe can network, learn from each other and help each other to advance. To promote the groups, materials and seminars of instructors of Applied Martial Arts to as wide an audience as possible. To make available quality study materials. To provide monthly newsletters which will include information on applied martial arts for all WCA instructors and to which all WCA instructors are encouraged to contribute to and use to promote their activities. To recognise gradings in the applied and practical aspects of the traditional martial arts so that people do not have to test against sporting or aesthetic criteria in order to advance in rank. To help provide grading opportunities for senior people and to recognise existing grades. You know, obviously with proof of existing grades being required. To give instructors the freedom and support to develop their own syllabus, to independently test against those syllabuses, and to have the grades awarded by member instructors recorded, registered and certified by the WCA. These grades will be certified as being awarded by the instructors in question and registered with the WCA. Instructors will also have the option of having their syllabus WCA approved. This is in no way mandatory and individual instructors are free to decide if it is for them or not. However, there are benefits to syllabus approval. Grading's conducted by member instructors against a WCA approved syllabus will be registered as approved by the World Combat Association, as opposed to simply registered. For a syllabus to be approved by the WCA, it obviously needs to be screened by us. It is not our intention to dictate details, and this will be a broad criteria, not specific detail, to ensure that approved syllabus include what I'm sure you'll agree are must-haves, such as holistic methodology, which includes striking and grappling, the use of impact equipment to include live non-compliant practice, awareness training, escape skills, bunk-eye, or the application of forms for those groups of practice forms. Help will be provided in designing such a syllabus. Groups who have WCA-approved syllabuses may make use of that approval in the promotion of their group. To allow member instructors to use the WCA umbrella to promote themselves and their groups. If the World Combat Association sounds like something that could be of interest to you, please don't hesitate to contact us and we'll send you more information and answer any questions you may have. So I'll now read Peter Considine, uh, ninth Dan, uh, his explanation and uh, introduction to the WCA. So Peter begins, he said, While there is now little argument against the view that traditional martial arts as generally practised don't work in real life street situations, back then it was irreligious to the mainstream martial arts community. However, the views of Jeff Thompson and myself were based on many years of door security work for both of us and, in my case, many years of operating in the close protection, bodyguarding, environment on an international stage. What we evidenced was that a martial arts system could be the foundation of a practical system of defensive tactics, but not without modification. Issues not factored into traditional teachings, such as fear control, surprise assault, combat stress, preemption, decision-making difficulties, uh, use of force in the law, performance under stress, environment, context, presence of weapons, multiple opponents, all conspire to make a traditional martial art often very flawed when faced with an unexpected violent attack. The strength of our argument, however, lay in our background as long-term committed martial arts practitioners. And whilst we espouse certain strong beliefs, principles, concepts and tactics for real violence engagements, we both still practice very high level quality martial arts and therefore speak from within, not from outside that community. So this is the philosophy. Whilst we started the BCA as a home for instructors who felt they had reached a ceiling within their existing organisation, particularly from wanting to research practical issues, we had other key principles that we have started and maintained consistently throughout the lifetime of the BCA. The first of these principles was no politics. Having seen firsthand the destructive effects on the UK karate scene of power politics, Jeff and I were committed to providing a home for instructors and students where an apolitical atmosphere would pervade and where freedom existed for, say, a karate to train in judo or a grappler to train in punching and kicking systems. We actively encourage our instructors to look outside the BCA if necessary to other groups who may be practising a system that will fit with the individual's needs. The WCA runs on exactly the same non-political lines. My personal view has always been that if you build walls around people, they will only ever look for ways to get over those walls. The other guiding principle we want to establish was to create a family feel to the association. This we have achieved, and I know of no other organisation that has such a friendly, helpful atmosphere, particularly giving the awesome ability of our senior instructors. <laughs> You've got to get Peter's humour for that, like. Um, so he said, anyway, it's these principles that we have brought to the WCA. The raison d'etre for the WCA was quite simply demand. Over the past few years, we have been regularly asked by overseas instructors and groups for details about the BCA and how to join. I never felt, however, that the BCA, as a domestic UK organisation, was the right fit for international groups. However internationally recognised, the organisation had become, hence the formation of the WCA. The WCA will now provide that home for all those like-minded martial art instructors for whom domestic traditional organisations may not be the answer. I know that in many countries it is still the main style organisations that predominate, and that the practical martial arts instructor is often a voice crying in the wilderness. Membership of the WCA will provide both a home of international recognition as well as strengthening their standing on their own domestic stage. The WCA will be an international forum and network for martial arts instructors who at the present time may often feel they are on the outside. As we progress it is the intention to have international training camps as we do with the BCA. The WCA website will promote international member groups. Many of our senior BCA instructors who joined us some years ago And now, with our support and BCA Exposure internationally recognised at being the very best at what they do, we'll bring this same support to the WCA and give a platform for the development of our instructors worldwide. Both Jeff and I have, over these years, become archetypal agony ants for our instructors and will certainly continue this service with all the people in the World Combat Association. We're only ever a phone call, Skype or email away and we will try to help you not only with your own development, but also with any problems or roadblocks that may be put in your way as you progress. Your student membership can only be strengthened by having them in membership to a prestigious international organisation, whatever style you promote. The WCA is also home for martial arts groups who are seeking freedom from restrictive practices, encouragement to grow and to network of some of the best martial arts practitioners on the planet. Well, that brings to an end uh, this month's uh, podcast. I say quite a, a bunk eye buffet, <laughs> shall we say? A, a mix of, of stuff this month. Uh, i'll be back with another podcast soon in the meantime i hope to see you at the uh, seminars thanks so much for your support of these podcasts I'm very grateful to everyone for listening in uh, particularly grateful to all those who kind of tell others about the podcast as well and help spread the word on them thank you very much um, and yeah i think that's it for this month and i'll speak to you again soon okay take care bye bye